hello, 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 all you music ed people. I am thrilled to welcome you to the inaugural episode of The Tuneful, Beatful, Artful Music Teacher. This is a podcast for music educators around the globe who are interested in the philosophy, the programs, and the resources of Dr. John Feyerabend, and for everyone who just wants to chat about great music teaching in general. This podcast is generously presented to you by the Feyerabend Association for Music Education, otherwise known as FAME, and hosted by me, Missy Strong. Uh, I'm a general music teacher here in southern New Jersey, right across the river from Philadelphia on the East Coast. Uh, In my regular public school gig, I teach pre-K through fourth grade elementary students, general music and chorus. Uh, And I also have the privilege of working with music teachers of all stripes in my free time. When I'm really lucky, every once in a while, I also get to work with babies and toddlers and their caregivers. I'm honored to be here and excited to be doing this. So let's get started. I'm going to be doing a little segment at the front end of every episode where I'm going to try to share a piece of the real world lives of all of us here in the trenches of teaching, the good and the not always so good. I thought it would be good to start by sharing something positive, Uh, two small things I'm doing this year as I try to be more intentional about communicating my care for my students. First, I've always tried to memorize my students' names in the past. Of course, when I was younger, it was much easier, but I still do it. But I'll admit it was for pretty pragmatic reasons, the number one of which was for classroom management. It's a pretty powerful tool when you know somebody's name. But now what I'm trying to do is to be more purposeful and say my students' names Anytime I come across them in the school, in other places outside of my classroom, so in the hallways, in the lunchroom, outside, I know that even for me myself, it means a lot when my teachers and my mentors call me by my name. And I'd love for my students to have that same feeling about their music teacher, you know, that she cared about them and knew their name and said it. So that's one of the things I'm doing. Uh, Another thing is... I'm trying to constantly remind myself that every student that comes into my classroom has a lot of backstory going on in their life, almost none of which I'm going to be familiar with. In the same way, I have a lot of backstory and they know nothing about that. I'm finding that reminding myself of this, that everyone has a story, kind of helps me be a more patient teacher with the children and also helps me be less reactive. But let's be real, it ain't easy, and I'm making lots of missteps along the way. But hopefully, thinking about my students as unique individuals coming from a very rich background will become more and more automatic for me. So let's get on to today's interview. It's only fitting that our very first guest is Dr. John Feyerabend who is not only one of the leading authorities on child development in the fields of music and movement, but let's face it, basically the reason why I'm sitting here talking to you today. Dr. Feyerabend is Professor Emeritus and former Director of Music Education at the University of Hartford's The Hart School, where he still teaches in their summer term program every July. So get out there to that program if it's at all possible. 
He is a past president of the Organization of American Kodai Educators. He's authored more than 70 books and recordings, DVDs, and he just keeps pumping them out and doing lots more work for the future, for which we're all extremely grateful. He's also, as many of you know, an extremely active presenter, both here in the United States and around the world. So during this, the opening episode of the podcast, John and I are going to start the first in a series that we'll be doing over time. The series is called What is First Steps in Music? This is one of Dr. Feyerabend's most famous programs for younger children. In today's episode, John is going to describe what this program is, how he developed it over time, the influences on it. I know you're going to be inspired and you're going to be challenged and hopefully that you'll learn a lot. So let's get to it. Welcome to our very first ever podcast. I am so thrilled to be sitting here today. Uh, in beautiful Simsbury, Connecticut, in the home of Dr. John Feyerabend. The reason we are here, the reason we have this tuneful, beatful, artful music teacher podcast for fame. Uh, welcome, Dr. Feyerabend. Thank you. Thank you for being here and for all the time you're taking uh, to talk to us and continue to teach us. We're doing a little series. We're doing one uh, for first steps in music and one for conversational solfege. You're two kind of biggest programs that are going on in the fire oven world. Uh, today, we're going to talk about what is first steps. And I thought that before we talk about the genesis of what first steps is, how it became that, it would be cool if you could kind of give us an outline of what first steps in music is because we know that for the podcast we're going to be having uh, all kind of the spectrum of people who are familiar and not familiar with your work so I thought it would be great if you could kind of imagine yourself meeting somebody you know who said I don't really know what first steps is I hear a lot of people talking about it what would you say to that person to kind of give them the elevator pitch of what first steps is well um well, without going into the genesis, I think we'll be talking about mm-hmm. that a little later. Mm-hmm. Uh, First Steps in Music is a curriculum to optimize children's musical development. That would be my one sentence, what is First Steps in Music? It's a curriculum that optimizes children's musical development. Um, then what is musical development comes into play. And so I came up with three dimensions that I thought are equally important in a child's musical development or anybody's musical development, and that is that they should be tuneful, beatful, and artful. So um, this curriculum looks at all three of those and includes various approaches to helping those aspects of musicality develop. So we can use both our voice and our body to learn to do those three things. Uh, so some of the parts of the First Steps of Music curriculum use the child's voice uh, to teach, and other parts of the curriculum use the child's movement okay. to uh, develop those tuneful, beatful, artful things. It turns out that there are eight uh, categories. I call them parts. There are eight categories of activities. Uh, when used together, they form a perfectly balanced diet um, for healthy growth in musical development. Okay, and um, two things that come to mind as you're speaking uh, to help those people who are unfamiliar and to help those of us who are 
kind of veterans remind ourselves of the important things. I noticed that you didn't put kind of an age limit or an age specification. Most of us would normally think, okay, first steps in music is for very young children. There's an infant toddler component. And then what we say preschool and beyond. Can you speak just a little bit to why you didn't say it's a curriculum for kindergartners. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, it's because it's developmental, not chronological. Um, developmental means that the purpose of First Steps in Music is to lay the foundation for all future music learning. And these are foundational um, musical skills that should be in place before we attempt other musical experiences like notation or instruments. Um, prior to notation or instruments, there should be a certain musicianship developed in a child, the tuneful, beatful, artful dimensions. So it's really for any age. Um, if I wanted to go, how young can you go? Because singing becomes a tool for developing musicianship. Uh, I guess it, the child needs to be able to be verbal. So as soon as a child is beginning able to speak or utter <laughs> verbal <laughs> responses, I guess you can begin uh, the first steps of music for preschool and beyond. When I was developing the title for that book, uh, I struggled for a while to figure out how to describe it. And the best I could come up with was for preschool and beyond. Yeah. Because it can be done with children as young as preschool. Two and a half to three-year-olds can right. begin doing this. But if I'm teaching children for the first time that are five or six, they arrive in a public school and they've not had any musical background, which would probably be most of the children that right. arrive in five-year-olds, chronologically they're five, developmentally they're younger than three. So I have to teach them as if they're developmentally beginners. Right. So you go right back to the beginning lessons in First Steps in Music and use it for five-year-olds. Now this could even be carried all the way up to upper elementary school. Right. Because while there are certain benefits to doing this for a younger child, the benefits being that music intelligence can be improved by up to about age seven. And after that, you have to, you can develop music skills in children, but the music skill, the limit to those music skills will be determined already by seven. Still, First Steps in Music does develop those music skills. Before age seven, it develops uh, their music intelligence mm -hmm. as well as music skills. By seven, music intelligence is, is hardwired and it's done pretty much. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't continue to develop music skills. So the benefit to First Steps in Music for children seven and younger is it does two things. It develops music intelligence and it develops music skills. After age seven, it still is quite effective at right. developing music skills in right. children, whether they're in fourth, fifth, or sixth grade. Or seventh, eighth, or ninth Because developmentally, again, mm -hmm. if they are not singing in tune, developmentally, they are three. Think of language. A child by three should be able to speak. Sure. If we meet a five-year-old who hasn't learned how to speak yet, they're developmentally delayed. Right. If they're in fourth grade and they haven't learned to speak yet, they're really developmentally <laughs> right, delayed. Right, right. And that's First Steps in Music. First Steps in Music is the program to help everybody achieve a baseline level of being tuneful, beatful, and artful, and even excel if nature gave them opportunities to, to excel. Right. Uh, another wonderful thing about First Steps in Music is it addresses individual differences, that it mm. helps all children achieve to their limits. Uh, so a child that has great potential will achieve great things. A child that has a lower potential will still reach their potential. It may not be able to achieve as much as a child that's born with great potential, but they still, every human deserves to have whatever potential they have developed to its max. So first steps in music. 
can develop every child's individual potentials to its max. Ideally, it should start as soon as possible, which would be as soon as they're verbal. If you can do it by seven, you're going to develop two things, music intelligence and music skills. If you wait and do it after seven, there's still hope. While I'm not going to be able to enhance a student's music intelligence, I can still teach them quite a bit about their music skills. Excellent. And the second part is just quickly, because in in further in later podcasts, we'll talk more about this. Could you give me an overview of the eight parts? Yes. The eight part workout. Yes. I ended up, you know, putting together um, based on what I was learning about, gee, you know, children should experience these movement things and gee, they should experience these singing things and they should be challenged with original thinking. And, they, right. and you put together all these pieces that I believe in that should be part of a child's development and they fell into these eight different categories or what I call the eight parts. Um, so the eight parts are, uh, four of them are about the child using their voice. Uh, pitch exploration, which could just as well be called um, a vocal warm-up, right. uh, because what it pitch, the first one is is to teach children how to sing with head voice. So children have head voices and chest voices. Uh, many children naturally default to their chest voice because most children speak with their chest voice, and then they have to uh, have their head voice awakened. Uh, some children, they naturally probably the ones that have heard it in their environment. If people have been singing in head voice keys around these children, chances are the children have already explored their head voice. But part one of the lesson is to um, awaken the head voice in a child. Part two is to see if now that they've awakened their head voice, can they use their head voice to match a pattern? Now, you notice that I won't say pitch matching. Um, I use pattern matching instead. Um, uh, it, so in the second part of the lesson, which I call fragment singing, this is where children hear a short pattern. And I like to use authentic repertoire um, to do this. So we have in our culture echo songs and call and response songs that can serve this purpose nicely. Uh, just like in the 80s when we learned about the whole language approach that there was this movement that why are we teaching children to read from exercise books? Right. The whole language approach said, why don't we use real literature to teach children to read? And I think First Steps in Music embraces that philosophy. Right. Why, sure. why use echoing patterns that are exercises when we could echo patterns that are from real literature? Right. Living, breathing. Yes. I think there's a whole lot of artful decision making that goes on when you start using real literature. Um, so the second one is, can you echo a pattern? The third one, oh, and by the way, that when you echo a pattern, it only requires short-term memory. So a child can hear a pattern, and I ask them right away, respond. Let's see if you can mentally catch the pattern and with your vocal mechanism reproduce the pattern you've just heard. The method teaches children how to become better and better at that. Uh, the third part, called Simple Songs, was an opportunity for us, the children to use their long-term memory. And like, children, do you remember that song from last week? I wonder if you can sing it. Layering on what we've already spoken about in parts one and two of using head voice, we assume the students are still using head voice to do this. But these are simple little accessible songs. I use limited vocal range and um, short, easy-to-remember songs just to see if a child can sing a song from the beginning to the ending. There's so much learning that takes place in singing a song from the beginning to the ending that doesn't necessarily happen just echoing a fragment. When you're singing a song from the beginning to the end, there's a longer thing to remember. There's long-term memory instead of short-term memory. There's a sense of tonality that emerges to see if the child drifts as they sing through the song, as they match the patterns, are they singing the patterns, staying consistently in the same 
tonality or same key. Right. And that happens in the third part of the lesson. Uh, there are techniques and uh, games that we developed uh, to help children uh, acquire better and better skills at remembering a whole song, and they all are part of the development of part three of the lesson. Part four of the lesson, the last one where we use the child's voice, or focus specifically learning through the voice, I call arioso, and that is where children spontaneously make up original tune. Uh, we know the highest form of learning is original thought. Uh, in research studies that are done with elderly citizens that are um, we're trying to preserve, preserve their neural, neural functioning, uh, you know there's a variety of things you can ask senior citizens to do to preserve neural functioning, do crossword puzzles, play cards, go to right. lectures. But they found among uh, the most effective means of nurturing neural fiber or preserving neural fiber in the senior citizens is conversation. Because conversation requires a, an elderly person to hear, process, and then create. And there's the key word, create. Create a response. Creating responses requires the highest demand on neural functioning. So I wanted to be sure that children had the opportunity to be challenged at the highest level of neural functioning in every lesson. Mm -hmm. And of course, like everything else that's happening in the eight parts, there are beginning, middle, and end stages to this. So there are beginning, how to first get this started, middle, how to advance it and advance, what you can expect from those students that develop this ability to spontaneously make up tune. Um, so that's called arioso, the fourth part of the lesson. Okay. There is a fifth part that uses singing, but it isn't the child singing, it's the teacher singing. It's more, I would say, from the child's perspective about um, listening and listening in a way that they understand expressiveness in music. Um, the expressiveness is, I use uh, this fifth part I call song tales. I use songs that tell stories because stories in sung form lend themselves to expressiveness. Mm. So a child needs to hear expressiveness song. It's hard to teach expressiveness by talking about it. It's right. easiest to teach expressiveness by modeling it Doing for them. It. Children that are read too often in the preschool years, when they learn to read, they read expressively because the reader has read expressively. Children that have not been read to in the preschool years, when they learn to read, they read mechanically. They read on the surface of the page. They read the words, and teachers are barking at them, read with more expression. <laughs> right. Well, it's kind of hard to teach a child to read with expression if it's never been modeled for them. Mm. So the parallel in music. Part five song tales are for the teacher to model. What is it like to hear a song sung in a very expressive manner? And if these songs are sung to children during these preschool years or kindergarten years or included in every lesson, eventually students will develop that sense of, gee, look how the teacher sings that song. I should try singing the song a little bit the way the teacher is singing it. Right. And then I bring this very elusive and tricky thing to, into them, the artful part right. of singing. Um, and so part five is an attempt to bring in more of the tuneful, beatful, artful, more of the artful yeah, by having so them focused. become aware of what expressive singing sounds like. Right. The last three are the movement parts of the lesson. Uh, part six is called movement exploration, and so much happens in part six. Um, ultimately, the goal of part six is to see if children can move in an expressive manner to music that they are hearing. So also artful. Artful again, and but this beatful. time through movement. <laughs> right, well, right. It, it might be beatful, oh, well, not, not so beatful. No, you're right. It's not so beatful in this part yet. But the uh, artful movement, I guess people would be most familiar with calling this creative movement. Right. So, Ultimately, in part six, we want to get to creative movement, but I know in my own personal experience, I didn't know how to achieve 
uh, good responses from the children right. that I thought were meaningful to the music they were hearing. So what I learned was how can you ex expect children to be creative when they don't have a vocabulary? vocabulary. So how can you make, create sentences in French if you only know two words in French? Mm -hmm. um, the more words you know in English, the more creative your sentences can be. Right. And your creative writing, writing depends on how well you think words. And so the same is for music. It, it, you'd be surprised. It'd be maybe probably not surprised i was on on i did not understand when i first tried to do creative movement with children that the reason why the responses were so poor was because the children didn't have any ideas they needed a movement vocabulary right. to draw upon so what happens in part six are twofold the teaching of a movement vocabulary and i don't mean a linguistic vocabulary right an i actual... mean an experiential vocabulary right. and i use the work of rudolf laban for this part of the lesson because laban so nicely divides various ways to move into categories he calls themes and if teachers will address this list of themes that i include in the curriculum they will uh, be able to provide the child with a diverse experience in different forms of movement, heavy and strong and light and gentle and sustained and sudden and so on. Then by connecting music to those experiences, the students learn the body sound connection between right. expressive movement and the expressive qualities of music so that when I generally say once a month, not that everybody should say that's the sacred magic right, number, right. Generally but that speaking. just means now and then. Right. So now and then, <laughs> the teacher should ask the students to do creative movement by putting music on and say, now based on all these movement things we've been doing for the past few lessons, let's see if you can show me some movements that seem to go with this music. Okay. Um, and then, of course, like everything else, the first attempts are lame, and then six <laughs> months from now, they're a little bit more interesting, right. and two years from now, they're even much more interesting. The more French words you know, the more interesting right. your French sentences the can be. The more facile you get and with it. Absolutely. The more familiar and, and more voca movement vocabulary you learn, the better chances are you choosing good movements to reflect the music right. you're hearing. Part seven. Part seven is called Music for Form and Expression, and here the students are taught very specific movements, but um, there are two kinds of repertoire we might use at this stage, things that you do with your voice and things you hear from classical music. So the ones you do with your voice could be finger plays or action songs or circle games. And in those cases, I'm looking for repertoire. Again, this is a literature-based curriculum, like right. whole language. I'm trying to use real literature to accomplish the musical goal. And the musical goal is that they see the connection between expressiveness and music. And we are so fortunate that in children's literature, we have this wonderful body of make-believe, wonderful songs and rhymes that naturally evolve or encourage the child to give expressive responses. Just think three little monkeys jumping on the bed right. when you go, no more monkeys jumping on the bed, and your voice gets deep and strong and heavy. Right. And meanwhile, you're shaking your finger in a deep, strong, heavy way, and it's, again, the body-voice connection, right. the body-mind connection, that you're using your body in a way to help you understand the expressive parts of the words you're speaking or the tune you're singing. So in part seven, we're making this body-mind connection for movement through movement to understand the expressive elements that exist in finger plays, action songs, and circle games. I also mentioned classical music because the same thing can be done by my, just as I would teach them what movement to do with no more monkeys jumping on the bed. Right. I can take a piece of classical music and say, and here's the movements to do with this phrase, and here's the movements to do with this phrase, and I can help a child come to what the composer intended with the expressive um, 
intention of that phrase by lining up a movement that goes well with that. And I was fortunate on the seventh part of the lesson as I was exploring using classical music with specified movements to work with a former dancer of the Martha Graham Company, Peggy Lyman, who was very tuned into the idea of this. Martha's uh, goal was to teach emotion through movement. Hmm. And I was looking for precisely that. What are the emotional gestures that I could invite children as young as four, five, and six to do that would line up with the emotional intention of the classical music at that moment. And what better way than to teach children to be moved by music than to have moved appropriately with the music and develop that inner sense of, oh, I'm, I'm now more aware of right. what's happening right, expressively. Right, right. So that's all part of seven. Uh, we call that movement for form and expression. And then the final one is beat motions, uh, movement with the beat motions. And that's got two objectives, and that is not only to move on the beat, but also to move on the beat in a way that students become sensitive to meter. Uh, there is no music in the world in meter 1-4, so it seems interesting to say in my lesson plan today I'm going to teach the children how to keep a beat because then they're just keeping a bunch of ones. You know, clap, clap, clap your hands is one, 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 one right, as you clap right. your hands. But the students need to move beyond that. That might be a very beginning competency that you can move on the ones along with the music. <laughs> right. But we certainly don't want to leave that as the goal. Now my students can feel the beat. Beats exist in groupings of twos and threes. So we work in the curriculum on moving children forward to being able to keep a beat in groupings. And then they both understand beat and meter. Right. But like all of the eight parts, even the beat part has a developmental um differences between beginning students, moderate students, and advanced students, and there's techniques built into the First Steps of Music classes to show how to have children accent this beat meter at a beginning stage, how to move it further with uh, more challenging activities, and what would be the ultimate wished-for goal for beat and meter movement or beat and meter understanding, um, which would be the later lessons in First Steps in Music. So put all these together, and I know it sounds like a lot, but in a non-rushed way, it's totally possible to do all of these in a half hour. Yeah. And then in, it's like an aerobics workout. Here's part of the half hour aerobics workout on your legs. Here's part of it on your arms. Here's part of it. Let's, let's start by a warm-up. Let's build up the challenge in the middle. Let's have a cool down at the end. And that's pretty much exactly what happens in a First Steps of Music half hour. We have warm-up for your voice. We have use your voice in a challenging way, the most challenging way, Ario. So we have a warm-up for your body. We, we warm up the body, and then we try the body in more challenging ways. And we end the lesson. I usually put the song tail at the very end because it serves as a lovely emotional cool-down. Not only are they hearing uh, what a song can be sung like in an artful way, but it also is a quiet two minutes at the end of the class. Come on, children, sit close. I have a lovely little song to sing for you. And you whisper, all right, it's time to go back to class. And the children's uh, whole attitude, it's still, I'm sending them off at the end of the half hour in an artful way with Absolutely. artful feelings, but it's not a, it's not a big, you know, right. emotional big thing. Finish. It's what I call a hushed wonder, yeah. a hushed wonder moment that I'm sending them back with that kind of emotion as well. You know, the, I, I often think about Michigan State University, Al LeBlanc won MENC's Outstanding Researcher Award. He had spent his whole life researching children's preferences. And you wouldn't be surprised by what he discovered in his research that children prefer loud and fast <laughs> right. over soft and right, slow. Right, right. But that doesn't mean that they can't be taught. Right, and that they and should slow. never and get it. The skillful teacher knows mm -hmm. how to bring both of those to children. Absolutely. And I think that gives them a broader understanding of what the art of music is about. And so much of this program 
balances those two kinds of things so we don't have these preferences for one or the other, but they like both equally well. Right, right. Well, I think that is a very thorough overview of those Maybe too thorough. eight parts. No, not at all. <laughs> not wonderful. It seems like you know them well. I've worked with it for a while. <laughs> well, um, just to kind of, you know, look back on what we said was the genesis of this when you were a young educator and yourself growing up, and we know that or if you don't know, you are a Kodai practitioner and a student. Before of... I ever taught, I already had my Kodai training. Yes. So I never knew teaching without a Kodai perspective. Right. And it's it's so obviously permeates every part of the Fire Robin philosophy. Right. Um, when you were first teaching and you were kind of making your way, what did an early childhood class look like what were what were people doing boy that's a funny question because um when i first started teaching and that would be 1974 um i was my first job was a k-12 job right uh so and i took the job because i wanted to be a choral director uh that was it was (laughs) the only many people's story well like all of us yeah Yeah. i came from a great high school choral experience my high school choir director melvin wasserman inspired me to go on to music education uh, so I wanted to be just like him. Right. And then I graduated and I went, oh, where are the co- high school jobs? Of course, they're not going to give it to a little 21-year-old recent graduate. Right, right. But here was this little rural school that was looking for a K-12 teacher and it had a choir with it. So I'll take it because I had a choir. Well, K-12 was fine. And, you know, we didn't get much training in college for K. Uh, we knew a little bit, but mostly we were learning how to teach notation, how to teach recorder and right. whatever. <laughs> um, so... Kay, I was not very successful in kindergarten. And hmm. at the end of my first year, I had started adding things to this little K-12 job. Oh, let's add a middle school choir, and let's have a, right. a, a fifth and sixth grade choir, and let's have before school a madrigal group. And so we started adding, because I was interested in choirs. Right. Um, I added all this stuff, and gradually they came to me and said, you're breaking all the union rules. You cannot work this many hours. Right. We, we cannot let you teach this many hours. Wow. You must give something up. What do you want to give up? And I said, kindergarten. They can't even make a circle. Oh, man. And I was, that's where I was right. in 1974. I went, because there was no training in it. So right. I, I was a failure. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. And, and today I hear that from so yep. many teachers. Absolutely. You saved my life. I didn't know what to do. Well, I wish there was a John Fire album around <laughs> in 1974 right. to save my life. There was nothing. nothing. There was not kinder music. There right. was nothing back then. So mm. I, I didn't know what to do. I gave it up. You know, isn't that just ironic? Because right. nowadays it would be the last thing I would give up. You right. know, if you have if you have a K twelve job and you're stretched too thin and you have to give something up, give up sixth grade. You don't like them anyway. I agree wholeheartedly. You know, in sixth yes. grade you can teach them some more stuff. Sure. Uh, another folk dance, another song, yeah. another another arrangement. But in kindergarten you can change it's their lives. Exponential what you can do. You change their minds for life. Yep. And absolutely. I, that's the last thing I would give up. So there was nothing around in 74. Oh, I didn't really become interested in early child and kindergarten until um, I learned about Ed Gordon's primary measures of music audiation. And how did you learn about well, that? Well, I did my doctorate at Temple, and I went to Temple to study in my doctorate because there was a Temple woman, University. Temple University in Philly. <laughs> right. What did I say? You just said Temple, which right. could be interesting. Oh, oh, I went to uh, synagogue. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, no, you went to Temple University. I went to Temple, which is Baptist, by the way. Right, it's right. It's a Baptist temple. <laughs> um, so uh, Temple University, and I was there because there was well, two things happened. I had just finished my master's degree in Kodai at Silver Lake College. Okay. And I was already around the country presenting. I was the 
president of the Midwest Code Organization. Right. I was being invited to give presentations. There wasn't a whole lot being done. Sure. 1978. Right. When I finished my master's at Silver Lake College. So Temple University was familiar with Sister Lorna Zemke's work, and they contacted her and said, we have an opening for a doctoral student. Do you have anybody that might be interested in studying? We specifically would like somebody with Kodai background right. so we can have people, somebody come to Temple and teach courses in the Kodai approach. I had just finished, and Sister Lorna says, I think I, I have, have just the, the guy. perfect person. And I wasn't really interested in doing more college. Lily and I had planned after the master's degree to go back to get public school teaching jobs, but I did that. So I went off to Temple, and it turns out the first year I was there was this fantastic professor who we became close friends. Her name was Marilyn Zimmerman. She had spent her life's work uh, applying um, Piaget hmm. to music development in children. Uh, she was well-known around the country as a researcher. She had been recognized for her outstanding work in P development of Piagetian stages to music. And it piqued my interest. Yeah, as a choral sure. director, I'm learning about these Piagetian stages. But still, I wasn't yet convinced that I was going to change my life. But right. wow, this she presented That's me with some, some really life-changing ideas. And then the next year, uh, they said, we're going to, you know, she was on her way out. And there was they were having a interviews for new people, um, and I was a doctor, graduate student, they said, well, we need a student representative on the search committee. Would you be on the search committee? I guess, because <laughs> I was pretty much want, still wanting to go back to the classroom. Sure. And th there were four candidates that came in. We won't say who the others were, right. but the final one was Ed Gordon, who I had never met. Right. And I remember that they said to me, you might want to read this book before he comes to be familiar with him, and it was Learning Sequences in Music, which wow. was wow. <laughs> I, I mean, I really don't think I understood much, sure. and I gave up because it was just yes, too hard I've for me at the time. Um, but then he arrived, and here I am, this Kodai guy, and here's this man talking about solfege and rhythm syllables. He's got some different ideas, and I go... Well, this makes more sense for sure. me personally because I already have this background in Kodai. Let's see what this guy has to say about those things as well. Right. So in the first year he was coming out with, this was now 1979, and in 1979 he came out with the primary measures of music audiation. And Which he was is? A developmental aptitude test right. that he published at the time with GIA to measure the perception, tune perception and rhythmic perception of children from ages five to eight. Back right. then he was saying five to nine. Now he said, then later he sure, said five sure. to eight. Um, but he presented this test that you could measure perception, and then he was explaining that the biggest impact with good teaching on test scores was when he tested children from five to six. Right. He saw the possibilities for incredible improvement right. in perception of tune. And then from six to seven, you could increase the perception of tune, but it wasn't as large an increase as it was from five to bit. six. And then from seven to eight and eight to nine, there were really non-significant amounts that you can improve it. There, you still saw an upward right. trend, but they were such small ones. The last real significant impact seemed to be from six to seven years right. old. That changed my life. Yeah. And I went, well, I've just decided today, the rest of my life is to decide what are those things that develop these scores right. to their max. How are we going to maximize? Or optimize. It's yeah. my new word, optimize. optimize. I like talking about optimizing the musical development in children. Mm. Um, so that was the beginning of the journey. At the same time, there was a, a woman who owned a private music store in Wayne, Pennsylvania, Robin Hegvik, and her store was called the Hegvik School of Music. Her husband taught saxophone at Westchester University. Oh, okay. And Robin said... 
we only, we only teach private lessons at my little private music school, but I'm interested in offering parent-child classes. Would you be interested in creating something like that? Wow. And I went, I, you know, I would because <laughs> I really want to find out how to optimize this right. musical development from children that this young. And she said, could you go as young as three? And I said, I've never taught anyone younger than right, five. Right. Let's find out. Let's do it. And simultaneously, there is a community school associated with Temple University called the Temper Temple Preparatory mm-hmm. Division. Mostly, still there. It's still there. Mm-hmm. And mostly that was private lessons as well. And the director of that's name was Nancy Hess. And Nancy Hess came to me and said, um, I hear you're going to be doing this thing out in Wayne at right. the Hegvik School. Uh, would you be interested in doing it in our Center City campus, parent-child classes? Sure. And I said, well, you, you know, I, I, I sure, let's try it in two places, although I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> right. So... Uh, You're okay with that? Yes. So I went off on my own, and with my Kodai background, I knew about folk song research. Mm. And I started looking for, all right, what would be around and and, uh, for in the repertoire that might serve as a purpose to develop music aptitude, rhythmic and melodic music aptitude in children. And it was slow going. I think the journey went on for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. So, but that was where it started. And I can say what I left behind at the Hegvik School and Center City, the three years I was in those two situations, right. I went from nothing to pretty cool stuff. Right. And just about then I got my big university job at the University of Oklahoma and I took that this concept with me. Uh, you might have, earlier today we were talking with Lily about a program I started in Oklahoma called Alpha. Mm-hmm. And Alpha stood for the Academy of Little People's Humanities and Arts. And I wanted to broaden this even beyond that. Right. Alpha was a program where children came and they had a half hour of music, a half hour of movement, a half hour of art, and a half hour of uh, creative dramatics. Wow. Uh, it was a big program and we did it for three years that I was there. Uh, but during that, I continued to develop the music stuff. I still didn't have something you would call an eight-part program right, yet. Right. Um, and then I moved from Oklahoma to the Hart School. And right away, I mean, they invited me to the Hart School for my work in early right. childhood. There was someone there that was aware of what I had been developing these years in Philadelphia and Oklahoma. And we have an opening. We would be very interested in having you come up here. And we'll have a combined appointment where you'll be a college professor, but your contract will also require you to teach parent-child classes in our prep school. Hmm. I said, nothing would make me happy. Right, the, right. The, how many college professors lose access to children? Exactly. So I had this built-in laboratory at the university that I had the whole time I was there. 30 years, wow. I was a college professor and had this laboratory hmm. with children. And it continued developing even then. Um, by the time I was there 10 years um, maybe even before that, I think I had something cohesive that looked like the eight-part curriculum. Right. That's the long answer. <laughs> and that's, um, I think that's a good place to wrap up this episode. All right. Um, I think that we have so much more to mine into and talk about, but in future uh, episodes, we're going to break down the eight parts. Oh, great. Let's uh, do that. Like one by one and really dig into them. And uh, also hopefully talk more about this Kodai influence and how that grew and, and the influence of Sister Lorna, of um, Kati Forai. We haven't even mentioned her yeah, yet. Yeah, and we're going to talk about those things. I want to make sure Super. we 
can look into it. But I just want to thank you so much. Thank you for... Oh, it's my pleasure. And this is such an exciting thing, getting this podcast off the ground, uh, looking at the list of topics that we're planning to uh, uh, approach in the future. I hope people tune back. Uh, Absolutely. I think there's going to be quite a bit here that people will find interesting. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Feyerabend, and we'll talk to you again. Thank you. So I'd like to end the episode with something I'm going to call uh, Ask Me Anything, where you can ask me anything. Well, okay, well, anything within reason. You can ask something about Dr. Feyerabend. You can ask about the FAME organization. You can ask about music teaching. You can ask about me and my classroom and my life as a music teacher, as a mom, as a human being. Uh, since this is the very first episode and no one has asked me anything yet, I thought I'd start with the first thing I get asked all the time. How in the world do you spell Feyerabend? Let me give you the trick that I use, and I still find myself saying it even now. Thanks to good old McDonald and his farm. If you think of E-I-E-I-O, then you'll know what I mean. You spell John's last name, F-E-I-E-R-A-B-E-N-D. So when I'm thinking of how to spell it, and you can imagine I've spelled it quite a few times, I just think E-I-E, and that helps guide me through this very German last name. So if you have questions you'd like me to answer in the future, or ideas for podcasts in the future, or just general questions, I hope you'll email the show at tunefulbeatfulartfulpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Feyerabend and his programs and resources, visit www.giamusic.com slash Feyerabend. And you know how to spell that now, right? F-E-I-E-R-A-B-E-N-D. We hope you would consider becoming a member of the Feyerabend Association for Music Education. And to find out more about this, visit feyerabendmusic.org. Today's episode was edited by Jeremy Strong. Our theme music was arranged by Jeremy Strong and performed by Owen Robert Strong. And I am your host and executive producer, Missy Strong. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope it was helpful and interesting to you. Please tune in for our next episode, and until then, keep doing everything you can to create a more tuneful, beatful, artful world.